leadership change feels strangely topical. Um, I think the Lord has a sense of humor in uh, pointing us to a passage like that. Successions can be gripping, unsettling stuff, whether it's in the royal family or in a political party. We have a new king, we had a new prime minister, and now we're looking for another one. Some pundits and commentators are encouraged and grateful. Others are critical and alarmed. Changing leadership has a strange impact on us. New beginnings can excite and unsettle. So much seems to hang on choices. Well, today, as Will said, after a break, we return to our studies in this remarkable book of 1 Samuel. It is in itself a key book in the Bible story. And today, in chapter 16, we come to a key turning point in a remarkable story. From its outset, as we've seen, the book is about the priority of the search for a true king. Leadership, kingship, drives the narrative from chapter 2, where we find Hannah, Samuel's mother, with a vision of a true king, singing a song of a true king, praying about a true king, and describing a true king. And then in chapter 8, you remember the people come to Samuel asking for a king like those of the other nations. Until then, God had ruled through spirit-anointed judges. He raised up as needed. But they wanted to be not a light to the nations, which was their calling, but to be like the nations. You know, we need a king like everybody else so that we can be as successful as they are. It seems absurd, doesn't it, when you look at it like that? And in that stance, they rejected God's rule and began to lose their very identity as his people. Well, they get Saul. He seemed the ideal candidate. Tall, impressive, brave, gifted. Expectations were high and there was a promising start. But it all goes badly. Power goes to his head. He claimed to be doing his best to do the right thing, but discovered it was the wrong thing. Sounds familiar. And God rejected him, chapter 15, verse 10, because he turned away from him and did not carry out my instructions. The king they asked for wasn't the king they needed. And the true king is not the one with a court or clout, but the one with the Lord. And by the end of chapter 15, we find Samuel and maybe God too, having a dear, oh dear moment. Chapter 15, verse 35, look down. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And from here on, as you know, for Saul it's to be a sorry story of psychological, physical, and spiritual deterioration. And chapter 16, where we are this morning, opens with the universal response to political and spiritual shambles. Depression. Samuel is, not to put too fine a point on it, deeply fed up. Had all his efforts been pointless? But, you know, God's work goes on. 
Human catastrophe is God's opportunity. God still works. And while Samuel is in tears in Ramah, God is working in the heart of a young shepherd in the Bethlehem hills who is to cast his shadow over the whole of biblical history. From this point on, someone whose name will appear in the very first verse of the New Testament and whose name will appear six verses from the end of the New Testament. The forerunner of the king, Jesus himself. So chapter 16 is one of the great transition points of Old Testament history. There's someone else is the mention, is, is, is the message. Someone better. Yes, like Saul, we'll see David is all too human and flawed. Someone whose successors would at times make the Borgias uh, seem uh, modest. But someone who inaugurated a new era, the first king under a new order which was finally to be fulfilled in the greatest of all his descendants, also from Bethlehem, the once and for all king of the house of David, the Lord Jesus himself. So here is the person hinted at back in 1 Samuel thirteen fourteen, where Saul is told his days are numbered and the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. In that memorable phrase. Well, chapter 16, verse 1, Samuel is given his marching orders. Stop moping. Get organized. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. God's choice is the theme of the chapter. And this is, make no mistake, a frightening, potentially treasonous mission for the disillusioned elder statesman. Verse 2, Saul may hear of it. And it's also an intimidating event for the local leaders. Verse 4, a prophet arriving in your town often meant problems, bad news. So they ask, do you come in peace? He does. Verse 5, he reassures them there's to be a public event, a sacrificing event, a sacrificing service. What better or more natural a means than to engage the sons of Jesse to assist? How is he to spot Saul's successor? Well, I don't think he himself knows at that stage. And a wonderful narrative then builds uh, and the tension mounts. We don't even get to a name until we see God's choice confirmed in verse 12. This is the one. And then David is named for the first time in verse 13. Well, let me bring you three very simple lessons about God's choice. Here's the first. God's choice seems contrary to human reason. God often picks people we're not expecting. Samuel thinks he knows God's choice, but he's wrong. Broad-shouldered, tall, handsome. They pass by one by one as the smell of sacrifice fills the air. Surely he's the one, says Samuel, verse 6 of Eliab, the impressive eldest son. No, not him. Nor is it Abinadab or Shammah or any of the other four, verses 8 to 10. The Lord hasn't chosen any of these. Question to Jesse, verse 11, are these all the sons you have? Answer, there there is the boy, the the youngest. He's not even in the lineup. 
He's tending the sheep. The one in God's mind is the one no one even thought to mention. Send for him, verse 11. There's a note of urgency. He, as it happens, is is a good-looking boy too. Verse 12, the Lord says, rise and anoint him. This is the one. God doesn't operate by human reason. A shepherd boy becomes Israel's greatest king. We live, don't we, in an age where externals count for so much. Image, appearance, talent, polish, they all matter. We're drawn by charisma, good looks, conspicuous intelligence. We're impressed by reputation, what we're able to project of ourselves, what people think we are. Well, look... Here is a reminder that God's agenda is always more discerning. He's more concerned with internals than externals, with character than first impressions. And character is what God knows we are, what we're like when no one else is watching. And look, we can package and project and perform and pretend. But what is scary is that when you've done all that, all that we're left with is something in which God is frankly not really interested. I suspect the family therapist might have had a bit of a field day with David. An elderly father who paid him very little attention, older brothers who disliked him, two enterprising older stepsisters and their families to contend with. David could have become an aggressive delinquent with a chip on his shoulder. Instead, he's a man after God's own heart. Here is surely a reminder to reject superficial judgments when it comes to Christian service, and not to reject people or exclude ourselves on the basis of externals. Somebody says, I haven't been to the right school. I don't speak with the right accent. I haven't the confidence in public. My family are awful. Good. God may want you for Christian service. Remember Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.27, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Let me give you two quick examples. I've never met either man, but I've benefited indirectly from God's work in their lives. When, on the 29th of August, 1943, George Campbell Morgan preached his last sermon at Westminster Chapel here in London, he was probably the best-known expositor in the English-speaking world. Sixty years earlier, the Methodists had turned him down for ordination because he couldn't preach. And he sent his dad, who was also a minister, a telegram that day, which simply read, Rejected. And his dad wired back at once, rejected on earth, accepted in heaven. Good dad. Good dad. God saw the potential. And my other example is the Reverend E.J.H. Nash, bash to those who knew him. 
If you'd been asked to choose someone profoundly to influence a generation of Anglican leaders like John Stott and Dick Lucas and Michael Green and David Shepherd, would you have chosen a quiet, unassuming, mildly eccentric, hypochondriacal clergyman who ran boys' camps? John Stott later wrote a tribute to Bash. He was nothing much to look at and certainly no ambassador for muscular Christianity. Yet when he spoke, I was riveted. Nondescript in outward appearance, his heart was ablaze with Christ. God's choice may seem contrary to human reason. He leaves us saying so often, who would have thought? He constantly surprises us and humbles us with the people he uses. Here's another uh, um, thought. God's choice is conditioned on heart response. How absurd of even the experienced Samuel to fall for Eliab's height and those man's man good looks, verse uh, 7. Intuitive hunches had let him down before. God's not looking for a good-looking man, but a good one. And he's minding sheep on a hillside. Verse 7. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And the commentator Ralph Davis thinks that this is the key verse in the entire David narrative. And we miss the whole point if we think that this is the first time God has involved himself with David. No, the public anointing of verse 13 is almost certainly the outcome of the personal relationship that has probably developed throughout David's life. Why should God choose him? Why should God choose to establish a relationship of spiritual intimacy with any of us? Well, we don't know. Other than that he is infinitely gracious and omnisciently sovereign. Most of us, to be frank, can think of a string of reasons why God should not choose us for anything. No, by this point, I suspect David is already a man of profound faith and spirituality. He had a heart for God. And whenever we read of a heart in Scripture, we know we're getting pretty close to the very core of a person's being, their mental, emotional, spiritual center. David's was focused on God. And you can't read the Psalms and not see that. As he looked at the night sky, he found himself saying, the heavens are telling the glory of God. As he runs after dumb sheep, he finds himself reflecting, the Lord is my shepherd. As he reflects on his inner thought life, his longings, his sexuality, he can say, Lord, you have searched me and known me. And as he feels small and lost and alone in the universe, he can affirm, where can I go from your spirit? His is a believing heart, a thankful heart, a truthful heart, an obedient heart, an open heart. Search me, O God, and know my heart. 
Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's how you talk if you have a heart for God. Focused, hungry, reflective, developing trust. Is that us? Oswald Saunders in his little book, Spiritual Leadership, says, Spirituality is hard to define, but its presence or absence can easily be discerned. It's been called the diffuse fragrance which has been assimilated in the garden of the Lord. It's the power to change the atmosphere by one's presence, the unconscious influence which makes Christ real to others. David had a heart for God. Now, if you're like me, you like to be noticed and appreciated, and you know we like to have our efforts and our gifts recognized. We need like to be credited with doing at least something well. And yet this passage reminds us that every servant of God will have times when they are completely unknown and completely unappreciated, and yet living for God alone and being wonderfully prepared for service by Him. David was trained for kingship in loneliness and obscurity, and through faith and and patience. Remind you of anyone? Jesus was a carpenter for 30 years. Saul was to be a lame duck monarch for another 30 years. And it's inconceivable, I think, that David during those years did not feel the frustration of waiting, the questioning, the doubts, the self-agonizing. And yet he can say in Psalm 57 verse 7, My heart, O God, is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. Charles Simeon of Cambridge is another illustration of this principle from Christian history. He was at Holy Trinity, Cambridge from 1783 to 1836, and he was appointed by the bishop against the will of the people. And for his first 12 years in the parish, they prevented him from preaching an afternoon sermon, and they boycotted some of the services. And they locked the pews, so he brought in benches and put them in the aisles. But he held on. And was to have a profoundly influential ministry across 54 years. He was one of John Stott's heroes. A heart for God enables someone to keep going like that. And then close to his death in October 1836, he was heard to say slowly and with long pauses, infinite wisdom has arranged the whole thing with infinite love. And infinite power enables me to rest upon that love. I am in a dear Father's hands. All is secure. A heart for God helps you to face life and death like that. God's choice is contrary to human reason. God's choice is conditioned on heart response. He's not looking for perfect people, for they don't exist. But he is looking for spiritual people. He can use people who are open, obedient, humble, and hungry for him. David was a person like that. A man after God's own heart.
And then finally, God's choice is confirmed by heavenly recognition. Verse 13. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Anointing is a powerful sign of God's consecration and blessing. David's election by God is met by his empowerment by the Spirit. And indeed, anointing would provide future generations with the very language about David's descendant, the Messiah, the Anointed One. The word Christ means the Anointed One. The one of whom God said at his baptism, This is my Son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Matthew 3, 17. See, God calls no one to service without equipping them with the power of his Holy Spirit. There are no batteries not included at believers. Other qualities may be desirable in spiritual leadership. This one is essential. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was given selectively for great works or responsibility. And indeed, can there be any sadder verdict on Saul than verse 14, just outside our passage? The Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. He's no longer God's man. And it's not long before his psychological and spiritual state starts to unravel. For us as Christians, the indwelling Holy Spirit is the sign and seal for us of God's everlasting covenant. The Spirit's fruit in our personalities works to make our lives winsome and attractive and our service useful and effective. Never that we may be noticed, but that God may be glorified. So here are some very simple lessons from the early life of David. He's God's choice. He's a man after God's own heart. That speaks to me as I close of three things. First, of providence. God's in control here. Nothing is outside his plan. Despite the fact that politically and spiritually, Israel is in a dark moment. God is preparing for the brightest possible outpouring of his power and glory in Jesus and his death for us, which we'll celebrate in just a moment. But his choice seems contrary to human reason. Let's never underestimate God's power to use unexpected people in unexpected ways. The second lesson is about patience. This is a long game. If God had ordained David's days, he has ordained ours too. And that gives meaning to every day. Not just the special days and the exciting days, but the dull days and the sheep-minding days. Every day is important because it's a day ordained by God. And if we're bored with life or we're losing heart, there's probably something wrong with our heart response. And our concept of God. We need God more in the waiting times, the in-between times, the uncertain times, than we do at any other time. And patience is that capacity to believe that God is doing something good, deeply good, with us and in us, even in the delays and the detours.
others. David was to know plenty of those, as we'll see. Only his heart response could keep him steady. And then finally, there's surely a lesson about priorities. Can there be any more important challenge in life than through the power and presence of the indwelling spirit to grow more Christ-like in obedience and service? That's what makes you a person after God's own heart. Leslie Newbigin somewhere says, the church is not an organization of spiritual giants. It's broken men and women who can lead others to the cross. And next week in chapter 17, we'll see David in confrontation with a very human giant. A reminder that when the spirit comes, trouble sometimes begins. But for now, it's good to remember that no one can know or develop a heart after God's heart, which is surely what we all want more than anything else in life until we come via the cross. And that's why, as we do now, we remind ourselves that God meets us there at the cross and nowhere else.